Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy that discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Bart P., Uranium Aristocrat, Grant E., Shane M.C., Jeff D., Nick E., and Irish Contrarian. Back on the show, it's been about a year, is Bill Sheriff. Bill is the executive chairman of Encore Energy, a U.S. uranium asset explorer developer and now potential production stage company with assets spread across Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Wyoming. Encore is also a uranium portfolio company at Smith Weekly Research. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol EU and also on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol ENCUF. Bill, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Lots changed in the last year. Yeah, certainly. Well, let's kick it off, Bill, on that topic. Maybe just give us an update on the Westwater transaction closing. Uh, some news came out today. Uh, comments on that. That's right. We uh, finally received government approval. We uh, had a pretty significant challenge ahead of us to close by the end of the year. Uh, lots of moving parts on that transaction. We announced it, uh, I think, the first week or uh, if not very close to that in September uh, to get a, a year in close, uh, going through final due diligence and getting all the uh, regulatory permission, sign off, et cetera, and a significant amount of reclamation completed by Westwater as part of the agreement. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a monumental challenge, and uh, uh, you know, it took real teamwork to get it done. But uh, our CEO Paul Gorenson really uh, really shepherded that through the through the finish line on our side, and we did close it uh, December 31st with uh, you know minutes to spare before the uh, end of the year, and uh, just uh, announced it today because the uh, we just got the uh, final CFIUS uh, government approval for the uh, asset exchange, and um, yeah, we're now the uh, owner of two of only 11 ISR production plants in the U.S. And uh, look forward to uh, getting uh, Rosita uh, through some minor renovations and, and uh, ready to ready to commence uh, production in time for what we see will be a, a pretty good uh, uranium market here coming up in the next 12 to 24 months, notwithstanding the current uh, excitement. And Bill, can you just talk briefly about the final consideration for the Westwater transaction? Yeah, you know, we um, we paid, um, what was it, about $1.7, $1.8 million in our stock, uh, amounted to about 2.5 million shares. Don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but they're on the on the press release there. And uh, a little over 1%, one and a half, almost 2% of the stock uh, for quite a nice um, asset package. More than doubled our historic resources, and uh, of course, the, the significant uh, aspect of it, uh, most significant immediate aspect, were those two production facilities. And uh, with with minimal renovation, uh, under a million bucks in under 12 months, uh, Rosita will be ready to uh, flip the switch on. Uh, it's been maintained very well and, and renovated, so we're we're quite happy about that, and and obviously even happier in that the share price consideration was based on the closing price of the. Encore shares uh, rather than when we announced it. So when we announced it, we were at about 35 cents, if I'm not mistaken, 34, 35 cents. The transaction was priced at 89 and a fraction, so a little over 89 cents, those being Canadian numbers. 
you know, it, it turned out to be, um, you know, a real windfall for us and uh, beneficial for Westwater as well as they've moved their focus entirely into graphite. A win-win situation and uh, certainly gives us a, a great platform to uh, advance the uranium now. Yeah, big difference in the share price uh, just between the announcement and the closing. So uh, good on you on that part of it and, and how you guys structured that. I think it worked out to to your guys' benefit. Well, let's come back to the new acquisitions in a moment, but maybe just speak to the broad uranium market for a moment. And then also with the market cap as of late with Encore, what is your appetite going forward regarding another potential early cycle acquisition of other U.S. uranium assets? All right. You know, the uranium market, I think uh, what we've seen is oh, an awakening or a realization that uh, we are in a vulnerable position in the uranium market. It won't take much to flip the switch from the buyer's market to the seller's market. You know, very different situation than we had in 2004, 2005, but not entirely dissimilar. Um, you know, there we had a, a series of unrelated events that really constrained the uh, supply side coupled with, uh, you know, a resurgence in demand. And, and we've got the same thing, albeit for different reasons now. You know, we've had two of the bigger mines in the world shut down due to exhaustion of supply. And then we've had, uh, you know, of course, the, the COVID-related uh, disruptions and all of this tying into, a, you know, a, an increasing awareness of, of the uranium market on its own. Uh, and I think really what kicked it off was the uh, uh, Biden victory uh, in, in the White House uh, uh, in, the, in the U.S. where, you know, we've got such a big push for green energy and the realization that it's going to be awfully hard to get there with windmills and solar panels. And that nuclear has got to be a significant part of that. So I think all of that's culminated into this really reawakening, if you will, of the investment community into uranium. The uranium price itself hasn't done much, if anything. You know, we're sitting at $30.40 last I saw yesterday uh, on the spot price, and it's still well below, uh, uh, you know, the, the incentive price to, to start production. It's uh, probably right at, uh, you know, an all-in break-even cost for a lot of the U.S. ISR deposits. But, uh, you know, you need to have some, some margin in there before you start. Um, last I saw, it uh, was predicted that you're going to need to see $45 a pound to, to start seeing any new contracting. Uh, and that's basically what Cameco is on the record with saying. So, you know, pretty good source there. Um, we we do think that uh, you know all the all the pieces are there and it's ready to go, but uh, we we think you'll start seeing the real move here, you know, 12 to 24 months out. Um, could be a little bit earlier than that. Could be a little bit later. Uh, if I were going to bet, I'd say that 12 to 24 is probably about right. Um, if anything, it'll be uh, I think a little sooner, the way things are lining up. But the key to investment, I think, really is, yeah, there'll probably be a significant correction here along the way. It's pretty typical of, of most markets, and certainly this one's been explosive over the last couple of months. Um, but uranium responds so quickly, and there's so few names in the business for investors to really get a hold of, especially with production visibility. Unless you're really savvy at uh, short-term trading, it's, it's tough to get in and out for the corrections. And I think... Uh, you know, we, we're blessed to have a very strong uh, shareholder group uh, that's been long-term with us and, and continues to uh, to be. You know, it's been a, an exciting time. We may see uh, a pullback. I think we probably will in the general market, as well as the uranium sector. I think it'll be short-lived. And I think, uh, you know, when you look at it over the next four or five years, the uranium space is going to be one of the premier places to be in the, in the investment uh, world. 
certainly agreed with that. And I'm not willing to bet my gold or silver ounces on any of the timing at this point. But certainly you make some good points, you know, the, the valuations of the potential for correction. The audience should expect a correction of some kind. I can't get on the short side of anything when it comes to uranium. And matter of fact, I have a policy here that we don't short natural resource stocks at all, uh, just because I know what can happen if you're wrong one time on that. But uh, certainly there's other sectors I would prefer to short if I was going to go short on the market and other vehicles to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Talk about the Biden component of that. Trump certainly had done a, a pretty nice job of working on the sector. But do you think really Biden can take it to the next level and really just with the printing press and so forth, really go after, you know, nuclear power. What's your thoughts on the on the incoming administration? Personally, I don't think it's going to be that big of an effect. Um, there'll be some give and take here and there, and I guess a lot of that will be borne out over the next uh, few months. I don't think it's any big secret that the vast majority of the uranium industry in the U.S. was uh, not uh, particularly happy with the uh, election results. Um, you know, we liked it. Uh, the way it was going uh, a little bit better, I think, and it was probably a bit more predictable for us. But, you know, it certainly looks like uh, the policy is going to be print money, print money, print money, uh, to throw a lot of it at infrastructure. Um, you know, the printing of money is going to be good for commodities from the inflationary viewpoint. Uh, you know, the uranium thing really boils down to, you know, policies is one thing, but it's regulatory time. I mean, it takes so much time to get anything permitted, so much time in the resource business to start with to develop projects. And you know, you couple that with the real shortage of talent in the uranium industry. Uh, you know, I've, those people that have heard me speak before know that uh, you know, one of my points has always been that we've missed a couple of cycles in terms of the professional and scientific talent to, to back the industry. And it's stretched pretty thin along, uh, not, uh, you know, across not too many uh, uh, you know, production viable companies. And so, you know, we're, we're quite, uh, feel quite fortunate to have our team on, on board that we've got here and, and back to actually pad for a number of years. And uh, here again with Paul joining us just recently or rejoining us, he'd been on our board a few years back, kind of completes the, um, completes the team. So I think, you know, all of those factors really, in terms of a realistic pricing and, and development schedule in uranium are probably going to be more important than policy decisions. The perception in the market from those policy decisions will, will certainly be an important factor on share prices, but that's a short-term factor and, and the reality of the business is a long-term factor. So keep it in that context. Yeah. The restrictive nature of, of the incoming administration, if they revert back to past policies from, you know, a lot of the incoming administration was also former Obama administration. So if they do go with a restrictive tendency when it comes to natural resource development, I think that's also very positive for commodity prices. You know, nothing else is going to be built. And, you know, that's also one way to look at it. But I also see that they could be potentially a little bit more light on these projects for the purposes of electrification, climate change, and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes about. You know, the other point, could you just talk just briefly about the importance of the SWU and UF6 pricing in the market? I think the key there is, you know, almost everybody, I, I would even assume everyone that's an investor, you know, keeps track of, um, you know, the uranium price or the yellow cake price. And if you're looking at gold or copper or, or things of that nature, that's pretty much all you need to look at is your base commodity price or your raw material price. Uranium is unique in that you've got the in, entire fuel chain. You know, you've got uh, conversion and enrichment and uh, you know, fabrication. And during the conversion and enrichment uh, processes, you have uh, trade-offs, if you will. 
if you're a consumer, you can purchase uh, anywhere along that fuel uh, cycle line and end up with your end product. So you don't necessarily uh, have to uh, buy the uranium. But obviously, at some point you do because that you have to have the uranium ore to be processed to go into uh, you know your conversion and your enrichment. But for short-term periods, uh, you can take uh, advantage of uh, capacity availability uh, in the enrichment or conversion and uh, get get your materials without having to influence immediately the the price of the uranium. So you've got to watch the whole fuel cycle, really. And in terms of big moves, uh, you aren't going to have one move without the other. The other point that I wanted to bring out is you're touching on the talent in the sector. I think a lot of these sectors, even when it comes to gold and copper, et cetera, are heavily weighted towards bankers and, and capital markets people, whereas the operational expertise is severely lacking. And I think it's probably to some degree always been that way. But in the uranium sector, the operational talent is a huge hole that needs to be filled. I think that that's a good point. A lot of the participants out there are on the capital side and people that are, you know, administrative that collect paychecks, in some cases, instead of writing them, but uh, an interesting set of circumstances on the talent side. Well, let's move on here. Let's talk just your appetite for further consolidation in the U.S., is there still an appetite with your guys' market cap here? Is there still an appetite for early cycle acquisitions in the U.S.? And then let me couple that also with, do you have any appetite in places like Australia, Canada, or Africa? Well, in interesting question. Our appetite uh, is, is always pretty healthy. Our ability to actually do something about it has changed. We've been pretty uh, frugal all the way along and will continue to be so, but uh, I think, you know, clearly when we made this move last summer and, and decided to become aggressive and move in the, in the sector that you know, we were looking for an initial transformational transaction, which we achieved uh, with the Westwater acquisition, it just, from an economic standpoint, doesn't make sense. You know, I, I'd mentioned we have two of the 11 facilities and, uh, you know, I think probably oh, the majority of those are held by public companies, but most of them are one-offs. And... Uh, you know, they're uh, UEC, URE, they've got uh, a plant. But uh, what, you've got, what you've got to look at is the cost structure and the G&A. And, you know, for these plants that are, you know, uh, 700,000, a million pounds a year, to have one of those and carry a complete G&A uh, structure for that one production asset just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, similarly, we're, we're reviewing that on our two plants that we picked up in terms of perhaps consolidating those and increasing the capacity at Rosita and, and um, uh, basically uh, reclaiming Kingsville. Uh, no decision's been made, but it's certainly a possibility. And, uh, you know, they're 50, 50, 60 miles apart. It's, it's just a, an immediate question when you look at them is, do you, do you want to have two cost centers when you can combine those, consolidate them and reduce your cost uh, Per pound that's coming out, uh, you know, it's certainly something worth considering. That same rationale, I think, applies to the whole industry. And I, you know, I think it's an industry on the ISL side that uh, is crying out for consolidation. The you know, conventional side uh, doesn't have nearly that uh, that situation, since you basically got one mill, and uh, you know, energy fuels is the the conventional uh, miner and, and processor in, in the U.S. and I, I don't see what the permitting timelines and, and that sort of thing that are required. It, it's going to remain that way for some time, but I think uh, there'll be some jockeying for position on the ISR side, and, and certainly there'll be some consolidation. Investors are going to demand it at some point during the uh, cycle, 
and it makes just good plain economic sense uh, aside from that. So, you know, we, we're, we're aware of the players out there. We, we certainly aren't the you know, biggest one by any means, but uh, I think we've got some great advantages that uh, may well see us as an active participant in that consolidation over the next couple of years. So, so yes, we're looking. Paul Gorenson joined the company shortly after leaving Energy Fuels. Talk about uh, Paul's operational expertise and how that applies to these new assets. And then how important is he in regards to relations with Energy Fuels, obviously still a shareholder of, of Encore since I last checked, and the potential use of White Mesa and a potential future partnership there for conventional side? Yeah, I, I may go in reverse order here. I don't think Energy Fuels is still a shareholder. Could be wrong, but I, I, uh, if they are, it's a, a relatively small position. I think when they went through their rationalization of debt and erased the debt from their books, they probably um, liquidated our position a number of months ago. If not, we certainly welcome them to be a, a shareholder. But uh, like I say, I think they probably changed their positioning there. Getting Paul was a real coup d'etat for us. Um, we'd been looking for, you know, we'd been operating under the leadership of Dennis Stover, who was one of the original uh, patent holders and developers of the ISL technology and is still with us as our chief technical officer. But uh, when we became a, a much more uh, aggressive day-to-day -day type company and, and flipped that switch in, in our thought process and corporate goals this summer, uh, we needed someone to to be in there, you know, putting in those 15-hour days that it takes to, to really go somewhere. And, and we carefully evaluated uh, really all the talent that was available. And, uh, you know, we... we we're quite pleased and uh, you know it was in, in terms of our list it was quite a step uh, Paul was quite a few steps above the competition and, and to be able to land him was was really uh, you know icing on the cake for us and our uh, can't, can't say enough about it you know he has uh, either operated or um, been involved with just about every ISL project in the US uh, has a bit of conventional experience along the way but almost in, entirely ISL and uh, you know he's he's built plants he's operated plants um, you know a couple of the more notable uh, things actually his career started with uh, URI which was the predecessor to Westwater so the, some of the assets have gone full cycle here but uh, having him on board to uh, really look at the Westwater stuff was a was a, a real benefit as well having such intimate knowledge of them um, but uh, you know during his career he was president of Cameco US and uh, you know that obviously the biggest ISR group in, in the U.S. And, and saw those projects, uh, uh, also involved with the number of Cameco's other uh, projects being being officer level within the company. And um, then of course, the, the one that I'm most familiar with was uh, when he was running uh, uh, Mustania or Alta Mesa in Texas during the last boom, uh, 2004 to 2007, when uh, the spot price went uh, from, oh, I don't remember where it started, 20 bucks or something, it went up to 150. Um, he was actually the guy that was selling and setting the price. Uh, I shouldn't say he was the guy, but Alta Mesa and, and Mestinho uh, were the ones that were uh, selling limited quantities into a very tight market and taking real advantage of that. So in, in, in reality, was setting the price of the spot market during the last boom. And, uh, you know, he did such a tremendous job there uh, with the, not, not only the marketing of, of the material, although that's a very important part is marketing, but all, you know, also the construction, operation, design, the entire process. Not many guys out there that have that entire, from, from concept to sales spectrum on a single project, much less a whole host of projects through his career. So, yeah, just 
I could go on for hours, but I, I think you get the picture there. We're quite happy to have it. Yeah, Bill, on that point with the sales side and with these smaller production centers, do you see a need for term contracts or are you of the opinion that spot market sales, as Paul executed last time, are sufficient for the company or do you see you need a blend of both? There's such a limited volume in the in the spot market. You know, the spot market, as we've all seen over the last few years, is, is pretty stagnant. It, it doesn't do a whole lot. Um, you know, when you really see the spot market is during periods of rapid acceleration or rapid decline, and then it tends to, oh, I don't know, overreact or accentuate the, the price movement in either direction. Most of the product in the market is contract driven, and I don't see that changing. Um, I think, you know, when you, we're in, we're, we plan to be in the business of you know, profit and loss, producing a product and selling it for a profit. With that in mind, I think it's key to to lock in contracts. Um, you know, I think I already mentioned that you know Cameco is looking for 45. I don't think you'll see anybody really signing any new contracts below 40. Could be wrong, but I just don't uh, don't see that. Certainly, nothing significant. And I think at 50, you'll start to see uh, you know a fair number come into the market. And, and clearly, you know, we will be in that uh, uh, category of companies looking for those sort of prices. Uh, I think you've got to have a base level to ensure your profitability, you know, ensure the viability of your operations and the company. Um, at the same time, you know, it's a board decision and we haven't reached that point yet, but I would anticipate that uh, there would be a, a, you know, strong feeling within the company. Uh, uh, here again, this is just my opinion, so I, I could be wrong. We'll see what the board says, but uh, I think there'll certainly be a, uh, a reluctance to contract 100% of our production. Uh, once we reach that stage and uh, you know anticipating a, a price rise uh, going in it's nice to have a flex flexibility to sell into uh, the spot market take advantage of that maybe you can just state it for any potential buyers out there but uh, first can you just speak to the bottom line of where you would consider signing some type of an agreement at a price of say call it 45 what's your thoughts on that bottom line price point and then i guess to the other point maybe there's some that are listening you know let's hope that there's not any desperate trigger happy folks out there looking to sign a contract for the sake of signing a contract at $37 or $38 when we all know that it's probably going to be a loser but people might try to sign that early on just to say that they've got a contract so i would encourage people to be smart about the economics that that happens a lot with a lot of these presentations bill where people talk about economics that in fact are just not true when it comes to their costs so what's your points on that? Your last point is probably the most significant on cost. And, you know, you're, you're all in sustaining cost of a project's fine, but you've got to carry your GNA, you've got to carry your corporate, you've got to carry your expansion projects. You, you know, unless you plan to be a, a static producer of static industry with no growth, you know, you've got to allocate funds for that as well. You know, I, I think, you know, if you're going to just peg ISL product or ISR production in, in the U.S., you'd probably look at something around 30 bucks for all-in sustaining costs. But, um, you know, and of course, each operator is going to vary from that a little bit, but that's probably a good round number. And, um, but that doesn't mean you're going to want to sign a contract. And, and even if you've got a, you know, $8 margin, like in your instance where you mentioned 38, I think, uh, you know, it's really not enough to, to ensure viability of, a, of an ongoing company. Um, you know, if you've if you've got cash flow need or some sort of debt service obligation, then maybe you look at that. I don't know, but I I, I don't. Here again, I don't think that anybody's going to be too active until you see 45 and 
and, and up. And I think you'll start seeing it creep in at 40. But, um, you know, here again, the, the fuel buyers are a herd group, uh, you know, herd instinct. And they tend to all act in unison and try and all get through the, the, the door at the same time when there's a rush. And so once the contracting really starts, you may, you may have a few outliers, but I think you'll here again, you know, it's all predicated on, an, on a rising market becoming a seller's market as opposed to a buyer's market. So uh, that part's very similar to 04 to 07, where the utility fuel buyers for the last decade primarily have, have had it available at whatever price they wanted to pay, uh, you know, within reason. But they haven't, certainly haven't had to chase prices, and they certainly haven't had to uh, uh, to get uh, you know all bowled up and, and and chase anything. They've they've been uh, you know in a very favorable market. And like anybody, you get kind of comfortable in that, and maybe a little slow to respond. But when you respond, you tend to uh, have to get with it. So that, that's my view on the on the contracting. Others may have different, but uh, I think that's probably a, a pretty good assessment. Yeah, no, I align with what you're saying. I think that's correct. You know, the thirty-eight dollar example. Eight bucks a pound on a production center that's rolling out maybe a million pounds a year. When you tack on your GNA, your pipeline growth, and all your other corporate costs, that doesn't even begin to strike the surface. No, um, and it certainly doesn't do anything on your earnings per share. We'll see how this plays out, and I think the utilities absolutely, when they come back in, it will be absolutely a rampage when it does occur. Okay, some of the new acquired assets, you know, maybe speak to if you want the expiration assets, but I want to focus in just a little bit on what you mentioned earlier, Rosita and Kingsville facilities. Can you just talk about the license status, permit status there? What do you see as the renovation steps, Bill? And you spoke to kind of timeline already, but maybe your timeline, assuming the uranium market was amenable, we had say 40 bucks uranium and there's a little bit of anticipation to get going. What's your thoughts on timeline, permitting status, et cetera, at these facilities? Well, the per the, both facilities are fully permitted. Simple fact of the matter is uh, Rosita has been maintained in, in better shape than Kingsville. The predecessor company, URI and Westwater, had gone through a, a renovation of, of the facilities back, uh, oh, a number of years ago here, but uh, in keeping with the last uranium boom, and have not really done much with them other than care and maintenance since. Simple fact of the weather, uh, Kingsville is very close to the ocean, uh, to the Gulf of Mexico, and Rosita's inland a bit, and so it doesn't take nearly the uh, effect of, of weather. And it's it's been maintained very well. In terms of uh, what we need to do under its current operational status of, of 800,000 pounds a year is basically uh, just sprucing it up a bit, uh, changing some of the controls uh, and, and improving some of it, but really not a lot. That's why, like I say, it's under a million bucks, under 12 months. And, um, you know, those are estimates that the, the group's pretty, pretty doggone comfortable with. You know, I think the, the bigger key is the uh, number of, you know, assets that are available to run through those plants. And, you know, that's one thing we definitely don't have at the moment are 43,101 pounds to, to run through the plant. So that'll be a major push this year is to uh, develop some 43,101 resources. We have historic resources that, uh, you know, we're confident in, in, in terms of uh, the previous companies uh, being name brand companies that have developed uh, uh, resources as is quite common in the uh, uranium industry everywhere, uh, you know, name brand oil companies that uh, you know, certainly did uh, uh, quite professional standards uh, or work up to professional standards. So uh, I think we'll have uh, good success converting those to 43101. 
But there's also an awful lot of uh, known projects in Texas that have a, a very good starting point, or in fact, in many instances, some established resources. Here again, generally not 43101, but could quickly be converted. And of course, uh, we're looking at those as well, uh, in addition to the leases that we uh, acquired through uh, through the uh, transaction. So uh, that that will be uh, you know two of our major focuses over the next uh, 12 to 15 months, and that is. Uh, getting uh, Rosita operational and getting 43,101 pounds. We think we'll be timing it just about right. Now, just on the timelines there, and also maybe if you can just shoot for a ballpark capital cost, let's say the time comes when you guys want to get these facilities up and running. And then also, I think you mentioned it before, 12 to 14 months on potential back to production. Yeah, and I think the you know the key here is... Uh, your well-field development costs are going to be more the, the capital expense of getting Rosita up is, you know, like I say, less than a million bucks for the facility. Um, so once once you pull the trigger and decide you're going to produce your well-field development costs, you know, four or five million bucks uh, is is going to be the, the biggest uh, single hurdle there. Maybe just talk a little bit about the difference comparison between Energy Metals, their facilities back in the day versus new facilities that Encore now owns. Yes, yeah, uh, really very similar at first glance, but uh, you know when you when you delve into it, it's it's uh, amazingly different. Uh, uh, we we took the Hobson plant on uh, 2005, I think, and uh, uh, to get the license and the facility. And uh, basically, the first thing we did is bulldoze it. Um, it was a bucket of bolts, quite frankly. You know, the weather had taken its toll. It hadn't been modernized. It it literally was a teardown and uh, a rebuild <clears throat> and uh, you know uranium energy corps the benefit of that uh, we did a nice job and rebuilt the plant spent uh, 20 million bucks or thereabouts and uh, but still we were way ahead of the game by having that license in hand and uh, it uh, uh, was a good move for us but you know compare and contrast that to going in and basically having to just spruce up a plant and be operational um, you know we're way ahead of the game with the current uh, current acquisition compared to where we were with Hobson. You know, I think it's being recognized in our share price now, uh, even without a, a big move in the uranium price. Uh, but, you know, it's clearly, clearly puts us ahead of where we were with the acquisition at Energy Metals. And Bill, the, now correct me if I'm wrong, they're both 800,000 a year licensed facilities and you're planning to utilize both of them when the time is right, correct? Well, um, you're right on the first part. The second part, we're, we still haven't made a corporate decision on. Here again, we, we are, going to be over the course of the next uh, few months. Rosita is the, the uh, <clears throat> obvious first step. <clears throat> what to do with Kingsville is uh, you know, a question that we haven't answered yet. Um, one of the possibilities is to take the equipment at Kingsville and uh, double our production size uh, at Rosita. Um, the other one, and, and the simple fact of the matter is Kingsville is gonna take a lot more work to get it up and, and ready for production. Uh, it's also a bit off of the trend in terms of the South Texas uranium province. Uh, Rosita's smack dab in the middle of it. Um, so its location is better. If you start looking at both plants are licensed for satellite uh, operation for satellite fields or satellite plants. Uh, but it, Rosita's just the better of the two. I'm sure we'll do a full engineering study to evaluate the you know, cost benefit analysis of, of resurrecting Kingsville versus uh, abandoning it and uh, moving some of the equipment, including a, a brand new dryer, which is probably the biggest cost uh, piece uh, involved in the ISR process. But uh, there's a brand new dryer sitting at Kingsville that uh, could be installed at Rosita. And uh, 
So that's clearly one of the things we'll be doing. So I can't really commit to uh, renovating and operating Kingsville or, or abandoning it and, and increasing Rosita's capacity. Um, obviously need a license adjustment to, to do that at Rosita, but that's something we'll be looking at early on here because we need to be ready for it. But uh, <clears throat> it's um, not really any duplicative uh, efforts in terms of getting Rosita up and running to start with. It's much easier to expand a license rather than obtain one. So I think you guys with the state of Texas probably have a pretty good runway to potentially get that expanded for Rosita much easier than the new license application. I think that's a safe assumption. And you know, just here again, my basic, uh, and I'm, I'm not the ISR expert by any means, but just looking at it from an economic standpoint, you, know, you have two, two projects, 50 miles, two plants, 50 or 60 miles apart from each other that have the same capacity and uh, presumably roughly the same cost structure to run. It, uh, you know, if you combine those into one, you, you certainly don't double your cost at that faci one facility. It may go up, you know, incrementally, uh, you know, 10 or 15% or something, but it's, uh, you know, in terms of the labor to run a plant twice as big versus half as big, you know, not much difference at all. So I think there's some basic economic incentives to begin with that would favor, uh, you know, increasing size at Rosita. Um, also, it would re reduce your bonding as well uh, by abandoning Kingsville and reclaiming it. So, uh, you know, yeah, I think that's a, yeah. certainly a, uh, an initial favored view of mine and at least some of the board members is to um, to go that route. But here again, we have to do a complete engineering study to, to make that assessment. That makes sense. And the reclamation made some sense with what you guys did on this uh, finalization closing of the transaction. And then also the bonds is also a key point to keep in check as well. So how about the critical path? Maybe you can just speak to that critical path towards production for Encore. I think we covered a little bit of it here, but talk about maybe the top three focus points, critical path for production. Well, I'm going to kind of give it to you. Maybe not a direct answer to your question, but the way we view it. And we, we kind of break it down into short and mid-range and, and long-term planning. And, you know, short-term, I, I covered, I think, pretty well in terms of modernizing Rosita and getting it ready to go within the next 12 months and uh, developing 43101 or converting uh, resources into 43101 um, on leases that we've got, as, as well as uh, additional acquisitions in the area or, or leasing activity. Uh, those, those are underway in terms of... of uh, projects that we've identified and are, are moving forward on. Um, so those are those are the short-term focus. And then I'm going to jump to long-term and I'll come back and, and revisit the, the third part of the strategy. Long-term is the New Mexico assets. And, you know, we've clearly got, uh, you know, a major interest holder in terms of what we do out there being the Navajo Nation, you know, above and beyond the, the state regulatory folks there in New Mexico. There's been such a, a long history and not particularly good history with the uranium and its effect uh, on the Navajo people. And uh, here again, we think that uh, by illustrating that it's a changed industry and a, a better approach and, and by involving uh, you know, some equity participation uh, to, to make it worthwhile for the local Navajo groups there, that over a period of years, and, and we're slating it for a five-year project uh, of you know, education, consultation, working together, um, and trying to develop that good base work before you start trying to go into production, which is something no one's tried there yet. Um, you know, we've had quite good success with that up north in Canada and, and our sister gold companies. So uh, we, we think it's a very sensible approach. We think it's the only approach that makes sense. We think it'll be, uh, you know, received cautiously at first. Uh, you know, you don't develop trust overnight. 
and you don't develop trust with checks. You, you do it with deeds. And uh, we think uh, it's the right place to go. And obviously, New Mexico's got the biggest resources in the U.S. and historically has been the biggest uranium producer. It's the uh, you know real prize in terms of the U.S. for for uranium uh, assets. But it's it's a long-term equation there. You can't go in there and just you know flip the switch and start. Um, you know, a significant portion of our uh, Crown Point resource that we've had there, 20, 20 some million pounds of 43101 has been permitted under NRC permits for, for a number of years. But, so the permitting isn't nearly the issue there as it is, uh, you know, getting the, the local community uh, support. And uh, that, that's really the only way to get into production there. So that's our long-term strategy. And, and I think a, a very vital third part of it, rather than a project or an asset, is our ongoing desire to uh, acquire other projects, fit into that mid-range and, and shorter range production view as well. Um, and it all goes back to the consolidation. And not only is it a desire of ours, it's a, it's a necessity in the industry, we believe. So, so that's a, a clear focus as well. Yeah, good points there. And with the New Mexico assets, just talking interstate logistics here, uh, with the Texas facilities, would the company be looking at any development in Mexico that would transfer to processing in Texas facilities to produce uranium? Well, you have to have certain facilities even on a satellite. You know, you've still got to have your uh, your resin uh, exchange system there. So you, you're going to have to have some facilities at the Wellfield site. The transportation across state lines is not that big of an issue. It's been done before. Um, you know, they've had uh, the resin processing once you collect the uranium on the resin. Uh, it's a very high dollar commodity. And historically, you've had it shipped as far as from Wyoming to Texas by truck, um, you know, going back in the old days. Um, so it certainly can be done. Uh, we've looked at the economics of it. Uh, you know, it's you've still got to have your disposal well on satellites. So there's there's not that much gain by doing your finishing processing in, in Texas. I think you've, uh, well, economically, you can probably pull it off. I, I think the you really, you've got to do your homework and your, your community relations to where you, you have support for building your plant there. Switching over for a moment, um, we'll couple this in with New Mexico, but just talk about the Arizona assets at this point, where those slot in, maybe the status of, of some of the projects there as far as the Brescia pipes go. You know, there was some push uh, politically, there was some push to set aside some lands in Arizona. And, and then, of course, I, I understand that there was a supporter in New Mexico with regards to uh, this recent bill. Right. One of the the co-sponsor, of course, uh, Barrasso in Wyoming is uh I've been a longtime supporter of the uranium industry, but also the uh, co-sponsor from the Democrat side uh, in New Mexico, uh, the senator there was, uh, you know, a supporter of the bill as well, and uh, a strong supporter of the enrichment facility uh, down in southeast New Mexico. Uh, but uh, so, so that's uh, I think at least uh, you know a bit of a tailwind for us in New Mexico long term. Uh, also a big advocate of, of uh, First Nation or Aboriginal rights, so that that should fit in as well. Um, like I said, we've got our work to cut out for us to do there, but we're committed to do it. And, you know, we view it as a, like I say, a five-year process. So it's it's not something that we really see accelerating much uh, or, or changing that timeline. We just got to stick to it, and uh, I think things will fall into place. And in terms of Arizona, those are conventional assets. They aren't uh, uh, amenable to in situ, at least not to current in situ technology. We 
don't view them as core assets, but we aren't in any sort of hurry to, to get rid of them. Uh, one of the things that uh, is that we are looking into is uh, through our 40% uh, interest in Group 11, a private company uh, that's looking into in situ alternate technologies of not only uranium, but other metals. Uh, we're looking into, and, and by using uh, new lixiviants or, or solutions to dissolve the metals underground, uh, we are looking at uh, doing some test work on the breccia pipes uh, using uh, different solutions that might make that ore amenable to uh, ISR production, uh, which would change the change the game on the uh, high-grade breccia pipes considerably. Uh, here again, that's just uh, test work that we have planned. Um, we do not see uh, any conventional production in our future. As I mentioned, uh, you know, Energy Fuels has the uh, White Mesa Mill and is the not, not only the dominant, but the only you know, conventional processing plant in the U.S., and, and we think likely to remain that way for the foreseeable future. You know, our expertise has been designed uh, through our plan to, to be focused on ISR. That's where we've had our success. That's where the bulk of our uh, background is in terms of the staff and, and the guys on the board. So uh, we don't see, with the possible exception of a breakthrough on the Group 11 technology, doing any production activities on the Arizona stuff, uh, the breccia pipes. They're nice assets. They are permitted for exploration. They are uh, discoveries made on, on several of them. We have a number of, of really good projects. I think four or five of them, five of them, I think, are outside of the withdrawal area. So they aren't affected by uh, the land regulations. Uh, the rest of them are in areas that have been discussed for a relaxation of those restrictions. And obviously, we're, we're in favor of that. You know, whether it'll happen or not, I would have to say it's somewhat unlikely in the new administration. Don't know if uh, Trump will get around to fix, you know, following through and, and uh, relaxing those before he leaves. And uh, if he does, I'm not sure how long that would hold in the new administration anyway. So we're sort of in a wait and see there. We're optimistic that uh, we might make a breakthrough with the Group 11 process, which uh, uh, obviously would have immediate impacts to projects that are not in the uh, impaired area or restricted area. Uh, but might also conceivably be enough to alter any opposition towards that, uh, you know, assuming we could show that there is an in-situ uh, means to, to produce there. So that addresses the Arizona uh, projects. And then we do have some non-core assets in Utah that uh, uh, we've already begun uh, talking to a couple of firms about uh, taking on. Yeah, that sounds good. I appreciate the update on, on the Arizona situation, and it's good to see the New Mexico support from the senator as well. Talk just briefly, you mentioned Group 11 here a couple times. Talk briefly about how progress is going over at Group 11 and result updates on technology you guys are working on. Well, we've we've been uh, acquiring a, a couple of projects. Primarily, the focus in Group 11 uh, is in gold, just because it's a high-dollar commodity. And, uh, you know, here again, if you can make a transformational or a uh, you know, uh, disruptive uh, move in, in the minerals industry. That's, you know, high dollar commodity. It's a whole lot easier to make it work on. Um, so that's, that's where the focus has been. And, and that uh, initial focus has been in getting projects suitable across a variety of geologic uh, environments uh, and mineralizing environment to where it, uh, it might work. And that's just going to be through test work. Uh, just like when the uh, initial in situ uranium work was done, it's, uh, it's got to be, uh, you know, a lot of trial and error and good research to, to make it happen with no guarantees of success, but we're optimistic. You know, all the pieces of the puzzle are there. We just need to make them all work together. 
this year and the next 12 months we anticipate doing bench scale testing of, of core from some of these projects uh, and we're currently looking at uh, working on a project that's already permitted for drilling which put us way ahead and I might even progress to uh, the next level of testing should we be able to, to get that project in. But the projects that we've uh, already acquired and, and announced uh, publicly uh, in Nevada will, will require a bit of permitting and then uh, core drilling, uh, followed by uh, some column testing uh, using uh, EnviroLeach Technologies, uh, or another 40% holder of Encore, using their uh, proprietary Lixiviant solution to uh, uh, leach the gold. And they're a 40% holder of Group 11, correct? Correct. And Group yep. 11 is a private company. Uh, Encore and, and EnviroLeach are the two big holders at 40%, and then uh, Golden Predator has 20%. Switching over to Kazakhstan for a moment, because that a problem. You know, obviously, Dennis and Paul know uh, certainly a bit about ISR, I would say. What are your thoughts on, you know, the disruptions happening over there with their production centers, uh, their viability going forward? in my view, unless it's significantly recapitalized, a decline in Kazataprom production levels. Yeah, I think that's that's the way we see it as well. You know, there's uh, at least some talk a few months ago that um, Cigar Lake and Kazataprom would, would plug supply gaps. And uh, yeah, we just don't see it that way. Um, you know, facilities are being idled and uh, uh, when they come back on, they're reduced. So uh, we don't really see that uh, coming in you know, to, to really affect the market too much. A uh, couple of other things. Uh, it's the question on Cigar Lake is really, a, they've got such a burn rate on going on current maintenance. And they've also got a built-in advantage on waiting for contract prices to go higher. Uh, it's a real iffy situation as to when uh, they will resume production. And, you know, Canada's not in complete shutdown, but certain parts of it are with this COVID. And uh, progress on COVID's not, coming along due to the vaccine as well as perhaps some folks had thought based on recent reports. So that may be offline a lot longer than people think. Um, you know, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. The Kazakhs, I don't think you're going to see a big ramp up in production here. No, I don't think they can. They've got many, many years of problems ahead and obviously <laughs> capital problems. And Cigar Lake, you know, we've continued to say that Cameco is between a rock and a hard place. And they can't really buy in spot, and they really can't they really can't do much with cigar either. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we, we do think you'll see the spot price rise as a result of them being more active in the spot market. But here again, uh, we don't see it being, you know, we don't see it getting to 40 bucks based on that. 35, I think, is probably pretty easy just, you know, from my guessing. Outside of it being higher, so it's relatively better, it's not enough to spur any new production. So it's not going right, to change your supply-demand uh, metric at all. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Absolutely not. And anybody who's modeled it out, like we have and some others, it's pretty clear that uh, it won't impact. And the other part, Chemico can't buy the full volumes that they need in the spot market. And as that price drives up, Bill, now you're sitting at $35 purchase spot pounds, tack on your GNA, CNM, and and by the way, they pay themselves handsomely. Um then I would say, look, they're spending money. If you add all that together, it's significant. And they're trying to oh. sell it into contracts that are in the 40s. Well, their costs after purchasing spot pounds at 35, I can tell you, there's no money to be made. <laughs> right, right. And I, I've seen an economic forecast by a, a former pretty high profile uh, financier in the uranium business that uh, makes a very good case for their continuing to keep cigar on ice and, and 
you know, just letting the contract price drift higher, uh, even absorbing a, a short-term loss on some of the shorter-term contracts just to secure a, a longer-term contract at a higher price going out. And uh, it's, it's a compelling argument. Um, here again, didn't come out of Cameco, but it came out of a pretty, uh, pretty well-established, uh, credible source in the uranium banking industry. You know, one thing I might mention just before I forget about it and we don't come back to it, the, the Group 11 activities, I want to make uh, one point clear on that. It's uh, privately funded, uh, so it's not a cash drain on uh, Encore or any of the other uh, shareholders, uh, partners. Just wanted to make that one point that the research we do there will be uh, funded privately. And certainly is, is a benefit there to the shareholders of Encore. And yeah, I fully agree. Cameco has plenty of money to keep things floating along. There's no issue there. And I see that strategy makes the most sense. Why would you deplete really a tier one asset for you know, not much of anything? So I think that makes sense and they can certainly survive this out. And with the time frame that we have in front of us, they have enough cash and obviously credit. They can issue bonds, no problem. I know they can do that to really see through until that higher price comes. So I think they have enough runway left, they'll be fine. You know, obviously if this somehow, which I can't see how it works at this point, Bill, but if it if this market delayed out for another three to four years, um, obviously they would be a different set of circumstances, but. Uh, yeah, and I don't think we're gonna have to wait that long. You know, there's just so much uh, positive developing on the uh, demand side. I just don't see how you can push it that far. Agreed. Well, let's move on here. Uh, just to wrap up a few other questions here, Bill, and sure. appreciate the extended time and won't be able to get to all the audience questions here, but uh, current price in the stock, current cash on hand, do you guys see any need to raise capital in the immediate term? Uh, not in the immediate term. Uh, you know, we've had some questions about from our shareholders about accelerating warrants and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, there's, I'll take this opportunity to say that there's no, uh, nothing on the table at the moment you know, we should be funded pretty well for the first year here, uh, or the remainder of uh, 2021 anyway. Uh, towards the end of 2021, it's it's certainly possible. Market-related uh, funding, you know, if this if things were to accelerate quicker than we think, then, you know, there are a number of things that could, could change that, but there's nothing in the immediate uh, future. And I think probably most likely to change that would be, um, you know, some sort of an acquisition. Uh, as I said, uh, here again, we we're still looking, uh, nothing's pending, or I certainly couldn't talk about it, but uh, we're making a dedicated effort to, to look for opportunities, and, and should we be successful on any of those uh, that we see being uh, you know, very accretive to, to our business plan, then, uh, you know, then obviously a certain amount of funding would, would come out of the market. We'd be very likely to not do an entire acquisition based on that, you know, just like the Westwater when uh, you know, the whole reclamation uh, bonding uh, was essentially covered by Westwater. Uh, you know, they transferred $3 million cash in, in terms of uh, uh, collateral for bonding uh, to us in that transaction. And so it was certainly not dilutive to, to our business plan. It was highly accretive. And, and those are the sort of deals that we're looking for. Um, that one was particularly uh, attractive, but anything we do will have to be uh, accretive to our business plan. A lot of value adding components to that, whether it's your guys' low GNA costs compared to peers is, is substantially low. The dilution here for this asset was almost ne next to nothing, um, a rounding error, if you will, in the big picture. Yep, uh, yeah. So these are good things. And so far, this is lining up quite nicely. Um, so I'm sure all the shareholders, most of them would be very supportive for future acquisitions and would probably be willing to uh, continue to write checks um, as we move here. Well, moving on, Paul Mosaic, he often gets credited for the energy metals success. What's your position on this? 
Well, he certainly should get half of it anyway. Um, you know, he uh, when we started that company, he and I both uh, founders of it, and uh, there was a shell in Canada. We had a 1.7 or yeah, I think 1.7 million dollar market cap, and uh, you know the the assets that went in uh, all came from projects that uh, I developed in, in the U.S. And you know the timing was great. Paul is magnificent in the uh, market side of things, and uh, you know he basically handled the uh, investment side of the company, and I handled the uh, technical putting the projects into the company, and and later on uh, you know interaction with uh, some of our larger shareholders. So it was it was a good uh, good team effort for sure. You know I don't pretend to have that expertise in the market that Paul had, although I've uh, picked up a bit bit of it uh, over the years. Certainly, rightfully so, would be uh, you know half his credit. Uh, I don't think uh, that enterprise would have worked without uh, either one of us at that time. Well, Bill, the company has a 155 million market cap Canadian approximately today. What do you say to potential investors listening, uh, maybe even to existing shareholders at this point? Is the company a short here or is it just a rounding error? Uh, you know, here again, I, I think that the uranium market is so, in terms of the equities, is so, oh, maybe inelastic's the word, I'm not sure, but it, you know, things happen so quickly. The moves are compounded due to the fact that, you know, in the gold market, you've got 2,000 companies to choose from. In the uranium market, really, if you're looking for producers or potential producers, likely producers, you've got very few. So, you know, I think the risk reward has to be on, you know, short term, who knows, may go up, may go down. Anybody that's looking at uranium for the uranium cycle, in terms of being a serious investment, um, you know, I don't think you'd want to be short any of the names. Uh, I think you'd stand a, a pretty good chance of having your head ripped off. But um, you know, are there trades? Sure. You know, even at Energy Metals, when we pretty much hit the peak of every uh, you know thing that you could do in the market in terms of first to finance, first to first to this, first to that. Uh, you know, it was it was a perfect storm for for the market and ourselves at that point. But even then, I mean, we took some, we had some disastrous days. Nobody likes to remember those or even thinks about them. But you know, we we went to 17 or 18 bucks a share from 17 cents, I think, or 20 cents. And uh, you know, it wasn't straight up. There were some certainly trades on the downside where people could have made some money. So I'm not going to tell you that uh, you know there won't be those here along for the uranium equities, you know, ourselves included, but everybody else too. But unless you're a short-term trading expert, uh, that's a pretty risky business to be in. I think you know, for the for the true investor and not the trader, you know, you've got to trade the cycle. And you know, we've got a uranium cycles are, are not too often when they come around. You know, we've been waiting patiently, uh, maybe not so patiently, but waiting quietly for 10 years. And uh, when you get one coming, they they last longer than a day or two. They last a series of years. I think this one's going to last a lot longer than the last one. It just set up better and, and more fundamentally sound, I believe. Um, maybe not quite as spectacular on the high side. We may not see $150 spot. In fact, I don't think we will, but I think we'll see a lot longer uh, longevity, a lot better longevity to this uh, cycle. So if you're investing in the cycle, you've got to pick your players. And uh, you know, I'm sure people will trade in and out. But if you're in the uranium cycle, you've got to be in it and you've got to stay in it, I think, because uh, your opportunities for uh, readjustment are generally pretty slim. Bill, best way for the audience to reach out to you and the company? Certainly, I'm, I'm available. We've got an info at, uh, you know, I direct people to our website, uh, encoreenergycorp.com. 
Yeah, we'll get um, myself or Paul uh, or the appropriate person back to you uh, at, I won't say record time, but certainly within a, a day or two, maybe three, if things are really busy and uh, go from there. But we uh, definitely try and uh, maintain positive uh, shareholder relations and, and contact everyone that calls in, whether they have 100 shares or a million shares. So we're, we're pretty easy to get a hold of just as long as the investor has a, a few days patience uh, to understand that uh, we may have pressing matters at any given time. Well, Bill, it's been fun. Uh, keep up the efforts and uh, we're looking forward to having some other management members back on the show soon to talk about uh, Encore and best wishes and stay well out there. Sounds good. Sounds good. It'd be uh, good to have Paul back on. He uh, certainly is the, the technical expert on these matters and I think would uh, be, be very interesting for your audience. And I want to thank you for, uh, for having me back again.